Um, back in during the um, darkest days of the Protestant Reformation, and the Protestant Reformation, we believe, was a good thing, but there were dark days during the Reformation. Uh, lots of violence uh, occurred in Europe as a result of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther, who was one of the leaders of that movement, said this. He, he wrote this down, and it's been quoted many times since. It takes three things to make a person a theologian, he said. And you could substitute theologian for a mature Christian, uh, a, a Christian who knows how to think and feel and live for God. That's what he means by theologian. It takes three things. You, you want to know what they are? Prayer. No surprise, right? Meditation. Maybe a little bit of surprise, but not a whole lot of surprise. You ready for the third one? Trial. And that's where we say, hold on, Martin. <laughs> Prayer, I can do. Meditation, I don't know how to do, but you can teach me to do it and I'll do it. But trial, I have to suffer in order to learn how to be a mature Christian? What do you mean? Well, Martin Luther understood something probably by personal experience, but I'm sure he also understood it because he was a man who was in love with the Psalms. Did you know that about Luther? He loved the Psalms. In fact, he called the Psalms a little Bible within the Bible, meaning that you can go to the Psalms, and if you, you didn't have the rest of the Bible, say it all got destroyed tomorrow, and all you had left was the Psalms. He thought you could piece together everything in Scripture just from the Psalms. I think he's right, actually. And one of the things that you find as you go through the Psalms, just like he did regularly, is that nobody there who knows God at all knows him cheaply. Everybody has come by that knowledge through some kind of affliction, trial, or suffering in their life that has been sanctified to good use by God himself. This is true even of Jesus Christ, humanly speaking. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, there's this wonderful phrase about Jesus. It says that Jesus, though he was a son of God, and meaning more than just we are sons of God, meaning like the son, the eternal son of God, though he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, if there's not any room in your Christology, in, in your view of Jesus, for Jesus learning as a human being how to walk with God through suffering, well, you need to fine-tune your Christology a little bit. Because according to the Bible, Jesus had to suffer in order as a human to learn the lessons like David before him learned. Now, of course, he learned them perfectly where David didn't. Uh, Jesus had many such advantages, but he had to go through the rough stuff just like everybody else. And the scripture makes no bones about it. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we too must go through affliction. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Look at your uh, bulletin. I want to speak to you about this affliction. The what, the why, and the how of it which is what David, it seems to me, is celebrating or talking about in these verses. First of all, what, what about it? What benefits can affliction possibly bring? Why would it be a good thing ever to be afflicted? Secondly, why do we believe affliction can benefit a person? How is that even possible? And then lastly, how can we benefit from it rather than being turned worse by its difficulty?
So first of all, let's look at the school of affliction. What benefits can we gain? Uh, Verses 65 to 67 deal with this. Uh, The key is there in verse 67. Uh, This is David's conclusion that he is wanting to bring to the forefront. In fact, he brings it there in verse 67 and repeats it again down in verse 71. It's basically the same thing in both verses. Before I was afflicted, he said, I went astray. But now, that is after I've been afflicted, I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me to be afflicted. Why was it good, David? How could it possibly be good that you were afflicted? That I might learn your statutes. There was something that I had to learn. According to David, it was moving from being a person who goes astray to being a person who keeps. Do you see those two words in verse 67? You might want to underline them if you're a Bible underliner because they're very key words in the Bible. The the word astray is the opposite of the word keep. To go astray is to be lost. It's to wonder. It's to um, be rebellious. It's to break off on your own and go your own way. To keep is to carefully and vigilantly guard something that you find to be valuable. They're opposites. To go astray from something is not to value it, to rather value something else, and so you walk away from it. To keep it is to stay right alongside it and to almost clutch it against your heart because it's the most important thing to you. David, at some point in his life, experienced a change from being a person who went astray to being a person who kept God's word, and he boils it down to this, I was afflicted. And through that affliction, God did something in my heart. I learned a lesson in that way that I could learn in no other way. In verse 65, he tells us that he came out of the affliction feeling like God had dealt well with him. I don't know about you, but that's not often my first thought when I'm afflicted. God, you have dealt well with me. Uh, the, 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 um, the trip from complaint to God, you have dealt well with me is often a long one. And I'm sure it also was for David, um, even though it comes in the span of a few verses here. David has a lot of experience behind these verses. Remember, he's fought for every square inch of, of ground that he has taken by God's grace. You dealt well with, well with me according to your, your word, and I want you to continue to do that. I want you to teach me good knowledge. I want you to teach me good judgment, like you taught me on that day, during that period of my life when I was afflicted. I could not have learned it any other way. When I was a small kid, uh, I was at my Meemaw's house where I often was during those years of my life. She kept us often during the day while my mother worked. She lived right down the road from us, down a country road south of Mulberry. And um, we were burning a burn pile. And those of you who didn't grow up in the country, you might not know this, but... There's these barrels, these metal barrels, and you do a burn pile every so often. All your trash and your yard trash, anything you want to get rid of, you just put it in the burn pile. The flames and the fire tends to come out of the barrel and into the surrounding ground outside of it. It would not be approved by the fire department. But blessed, blessed be the Lord, there is no fire department to watch you down in the glorious country. And so you can do whatever you want. And there I was, sort of helping my Meemaw tend the fire. It was starting to die down, and we noticed, I noticed, 
that a few oranges that we had thrown in there early in the burn process were still there. All the coals were glowing red, and there was an orange or two or three, and they were still orange. Um, I didn't know. I, I was marveling at how that was possible, and so I reached in, and I grabbed the orange. I was little, remember. I didn't know. I learned a lesson that I could not have learned any other way, right? A thing doesn't have to look burnt in order to be red hot. If it's been in a fire for a long time, it's going to be red hot no matter how it looks. I learned that by experience. I had to take my, my Meemaw's al aloe plants and break one off and rub it on my palms. Have you ever had burnt palms? It's not fun. I rubbed it on my palms and I nursed it throughout the rest of that day and probably the next. There are some lessons that can only be learned through the vivid experience of pain. We could look at David's life, and surely all of us could come up with times where maybe David is, is, is learning through affliction. You could go all the way back to his childhood. It seemed like David was kind of the forgotten child of the family. He was the runt. He was sort of the one kept out in the field. Surely that was hard. Surely it was hard that David had to watch the sheep while the elder brothers went around showboating, going to battle and all the fun things. And there's David having to hang out with the sheep, boring old sheep. Not to mention, David tells us he fought bears and he fought lions while he did that. We could fast forward. David on the run from Saul. That was a hard experience. He was learning from that time where he was going from cave to cave. From one territory to the other, trying to escape from Paul's grasp. You could fast forward again. Being king ain't easy, y'all. Being king's not easy. David was a popular king, but David had enemies, and just about every king always has. And he talks a lot in the Psalms about the bitterness of being, being aimed at. And here he talks about being smeared with lies in verse 69. Being smeared with lies. Common experience of anybody who's leading, but especially a king during that time. David had a lot of opportunities to learn through affliction. Here's the lesson for us. When we go through hard things, and they can be small hard things, they can be big hard things, instead of doing what we normally do, which is to think, this is really bad, this is negative, therefore it must be the outcome has to be negative. Let's think differently. This is negative, this is a hard thing, but you know, maybe there's redemption in it. Maybe out of the negative, God can bring, bring something constructive. Maybe God can teach me something through this that I would not have been able to learn any other way. Lord, show me what you want to teach me. That's hard. I mean, it makes a whole lot of sense to make that first conclusion. I, I think it does. Negative experiences equal negative outcomes. That seems logically airtight, doesn't it? It hurts here, and therefore it's going to hurt at the end, and it's going to hurt forever. Well, that is true, but it doesn't factor in this one very important thing. God knows how to work in mysterious ways. And he always has been a God who works in mysterious ways. Just think for a moment about the cross. 
Think about that. We don't want to get into the whole discussion of could God have saved people in any other way besides the cross. By the way, I think the answer to that is no. But we don't want to get into that discussion. Let's just know that he did choose to save by the cross. What a marvelous thing. God would choose to save you and me, to save his people, through the suffering of Jesus. The unjust suffering of Jesus. A very, very, very bitter experience. And yet, just because it was a negative experience did not mean it had a negative outcome. Therefore, it gives hope to me and you. That when we have negative experiences, it doesn't necessarily have to mean the outcome will be negative. There can be something redemptive that flows out of it. It might not be immediately apparent. probably won't be immediately apparent. In fact, it might not be apparent for a very long time. But we can trust that it will come. On the plane ride back from Memphis, I was reading a little bit of a book. Sitting next to Ben. Ben was asleep. And I was, and I was reading. <laughs> It's a book called Fair Sunshine, and it's, a, it's, a, it's famous among some people, people like me, nerdy people. It's a great Christian book. I would encourage you to read it. It's put out by the Banner of Truth, and it's these little stories of, of people that are known as the Covenanters. And You may not have ever heard of the Covenanters, but they were a hardy group of men and women and even children in Scotland in the 1600s and 1700s who were persecuted by the king for their beliefs and they held fast for like decades they call them the covenanters because they covenanted to be true to God and they wouldn't break it no matter what happened and here's what the writer says about them he says they were of the school who know the permitted power of the devil the devil's power is a permitted power who permits his power God And they knew, therefore, in adversity, not to rebel against God, but to bless the name of the Lord as Job of old, neither sinning nor charging God foolishly. They, listen to this, they believed that their sufferings were as blood-washed as their sins. Huh? At this time, when I read that, the Southwest lady was coming by with my coffee. And it threw me off reading. I had to go back and read it a second time because it was so beautiful. I went right back to it. They believed that their sufferings were as blood washed as their sins. What does that mean? I thought about that in my head. What in the world does that even mean to have sufferings blood washed? It means that our sufferings are not wasted. That the blood of Jesus waters sufferings the way water waters a seed. When the blood of Jesus waters the sufferings of his people, it ensures that good fruit will emerge at some point from it. He goes on. Their master kept his good and best wine to the last on Mount Calvary at the cross. And so they knew that in bringing many sons to glory, God also brings them this way too. Through the cross. Through the darkness of suffering. But watering it. Drenching it with the blood of Jesus, so that it can have its full effect. David says, it was good for me to be afflicted. Before I was afflicted, wow, you should have seen me. I went astray, but now I keep his word. I'm sure you've got testimonies like this in your life. I know I do. There are several times in my life where God used affliction 
to teach me not to go astray. How about you? I think of three in particular. I don't have time to tell you about them this time, but I'll tell you about them sometime if you ask me. There are three particular times in my life where affliction up to now has been a key part of his teaching me not to go astray. Well, that leads us to our second thing, which is why we believe all this is possible. And we've already said it's by looking at the cross. It's by knowing that God has drenched our sufferings with his blood. But I want you to look at verse 68 because behind the cross, behind the blood-drenching blood of Jesus, washing away both our sins and our sufferings, you have a God whose character is good. Look at what he says. What does it say in verse 68? Just read it out loud. Read it. You are good and do good. This is what he knows about God. This is what has prepared him to see his afflictions in a new way. In a way that searches for the redeeming quality. He knows that he gets to come back home to God no matter what he goes through in his life. It was a sweet thing when I got back home on Friday and and arrived back at our house after a week away. It was such a sweet thing. The kids and Stacy and everybody coming to give me a hug and welcome me back home. My place. David has picked his place. His place is with God, spiritually speaking. No matter what afflictions he's gone through, whatever what difficulties, he comes back home to God. And what does he find when he gets there? You are good and you do good. No ifs, no ands, no buts about it. No shadows of turning or of change. God is good all the time. God does good all the time. God's very character and nature is pure goodness. That is, he is constantly studying how to share his bounty with the world. Especially with his people bought by the blood of Jesus. He's sharing his bounty. He's opening his hands. All creatures are fed by his generosity. Just that very moment when he closes his hands, things shrivel up and die. He opens them again and there they come to life. God is teaching us of the goodness and the consistency of his character. And David knows that refuge for him is a place he can go back to where he can, from that vantage point, look again at his afflictions and see hope. He can see positive fruit that is able to abound from affliction. I thought about this as I considered the verse and how important it is for us to get our theology right. And by theology, I don't just mean academic knowledge. I mean like real, true knowing of God. So important. Uh, if you go to the store, say you went to Books a Million tonight and you wanted to get books about how to grieve or handle suffering, you'll find a lot there. But most of them, and I, and I know because I've looked at them and, and read a lot of them, most of them are all about what to do after you've suffered. Very few of them talk about how to prepare for suffering. It's all about how to pick up the pieces, how to move on, how to get stronger, how to get better. Very few are like how to prepare for your life to fall apart, right? You just don't find that book out there. I'm, I'm sure it is. If you Google it, I'm sure you'll find it, but it's not readily available. But Scripture comes to us with that kind of advice, that kind of 
Wisdom. That's more than advice. It's wisdom. And it says this. If you get your theology right, if you know who God is, and if you know him in such a way that God is your home base that you always run back to, you will be prepared to suffer. You will be, a, be prepared to be afflicted. Because if you know God is good, and God always does good, there is not, well, this is what R.C. Sproul used to say, there is not one rogue molecule in the, in the whole universe. I like that. Not one rogue molecule. Everything is under his direction and command. And, and yeah, there are many evil things in the world, and there are many evil actors in the world. Remember we said the covenanters knew the power of the devil, but they knew it was a permitted power. They didn't think that God liked the devil or that he approved of the devil's use of power, but he permitted it for greater ends, for greater good. And that's what David understands. You are good, God, and you do good. Your management of the world is not something that I'm willing to question. I do question it sometimes because I don't understand, but I'm not ultimately willing to persist in questioning and doubting it because I know your character. Behind a, a frowning providence hides a smiling face. It must be true because God's face is that way. God does not change. Not in the least bit. He never has changed. He never will change. If God was good 2,000 years ago, he's good today. If at the cross God demonstrated his goodness by sending his son through affliction on behalf of his people, God is the same God today as he was then. In that sense, Calvary is every bit as valuable today as it was then. Because God hasn't changed. The present power of the blood of Jesus hasn't lost any of its value. The blood of Jesus has the same currency right now as it had then. And every day in between. What that means is, is my afflictions are also washed, drenched, in the blood of Jesus, sanctified, so that everything that happens to me, as Scripture says, God is working out for my eternal good. Eternal good. doesn't always mean it will equal my present good. And, that, and that's where the rub is. I think that, that's where the difficulty that I have is. It, it breaks my heart to see suffering. It breaks my heart to suffer. It, it breaks my heart that there even is such a thing as suffering. I don't want anybody to suffer, and I'm sure you don't either. And I don't like that suffering causes a lot of temporary pain and hurt and even wreckage. It can destroy people's lives, and I hate that. But what the Bible says is that eternally things can be good, things can be well with a person, even when temporally they are not. Why? God is good, and God does good. Notice the present tense in both. You are good, and you do good. It doesn't change. Always the same. How confident are you of God's goodness? Be honest. You don't have to say it out loud, of course, but, but it's good to be honest in church. At least it's good to be honest with God wherever you are, right? God already knows anyway. And I find that a lot of times I'm very unprepared for suffering because I'm, I'm not 
fully convinced somewhere in me of the goodness of God. That gets revealed to me in, in suffering sometimes. Well, that tells you where you need to work. That tells you where you need to pray. God, help me to trust your goodness. Help me to really believe it. Help me not to judge you by circumstances, but to learn to judge circumstances by you. You are good and you do good. Help me there, Lord. Teach me. Build my confidence. If we hesitate, if we waver, if we think God's good one moment and bad the next, we are totally unprepared for affliction. Totally unprepared. If that's you, you're in good company. We've all been there. Ask the Lord to help you. Ask the Lord to build you up. That leads us to our last thing. How can we benefit from affliction? And here's what it is. It's having a heart that is open to God. Uh, Look at verse 69 to 72 where David contrasts two different types of hearts. One heart is closed. The other heart is open. Have you ever gone to a store or a restaurant that you really, really wanted to go to and you got there and realized they were closed? Man, what a frustrating thing. When it's closed, you can't go in, obviously. You can't have that experience you wanted to have. You can't buy the things you wanted to buy. When it's open, you can. Open and closed. It's like black and white. I mean, you can't, I mean it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty plain, the, the, the choice between those two things. David says, look, the arrogant people, verse 69, look, the arrogant, the ones who smear me with lies, their hearts are unfeeling like fat. What a picture. Unfeeling like fat. I don't know if anybody else has a different translation, but I love the different translations on this verse. Anybody have something different? Or are we all 100% ESV tonight? What's it? Covered with fat. Is that what it says? Covered with fat. There's, all of them are different on this particular verse. And I didn't write down what they all were. I usually do. But it was fun to read them all because it's just very picturesque. This heart that has been encased in its own sort of selfishness. So encased, in fact, that it can't feel anything from the outside. You poke it and it doesn't feel. You try to stab it and it can't penetrate. It's closed off. You get to the door and, it, and the store is closed. There's no interaction possible. And, and of course, David means it's closed to God. These are arrogant people. They're unfeeling. They smear me with lies. They hate God, and therefore they hate me. By contrast, he says, look at what heart God has given me. My whole heart longs to keep your precepts, verse 69. Verse 70, I delight, see, their heart's unfeeling like fat. Mine is full of delight in the law of God. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. I value the law of God more than treasure. That's how open my heart is to God. And therefore, I'm able to say, verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted. You see the difference? A person whose heart is arrogantly closed off to the work of the Lord and to the word of the Lord, when affliction happens, it will become harder. The person who has opened their heart to God's work and word and ways 
when affliction comes, it's likely that their heart will get softer. Sometimes we say it this way, and maybe some of y'all have been hearing me saying this throughout tonight, but I want to make sure you're not hearing me say the wrong thing. Sometimes we think, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. All affliction always makes you stronger. And I want to say, hold on. No, not always. Right? Why? Well, there, there are, certainly there are some people who do get stronger through affliction. That's what we're talking about tonight. David was one of those people. We can be those people by grace. But we also know, maybe from our own lives, and certainly we know from uh, other lives around us, that people can sometimes be made worse through their affliction. Isn't that right? Have you ever wondered what makes the difference? Right. Exactly. What makes the difference? Which direction is my heart pointing to? Is my heart closed to God? Like a store with the locks and the chain gate down and... No entrance, the lights are turned off, and you can't get in here, God, because I want to rule my own life. I want to go my own way. I want to believe my own thing. I'll be judge. Or is your heart open for business? Doors flung open, lights on, welcome mat put out, welcome, God. You be the judge. You be the teacher. You be the ruler. That second heart, that's the heart that in affliction gets stronger, better, more refined, like a wine. Uh, that's the one who is able to actually learn things from affliction. This is why Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. His heart was open to his Father. The other heart will never learn from affliction, will instead find in affliction more reasons to hate God, more reasons to shut God out. And that picture of more and more fat growing up around the heart. I mean, it's just a sad picture. That will happen if the heart starts with a blockade against the Creator. Alex, you had your hand up? It does. No. Mm -mm. It does take time. And I'm, I... I think, too, when you start to feel pain and affliction, there, there have been a few times in my life where I've had something hard happen, and at first I felt that feeling of unfeeling. <laughs> and I felt that my heart was closing to the Lord. And I've also experienced how God was so merciful to me to change direction, even in just that moment. It took some time, but... To, to notice, all right, Lord, I feel like I'm closing myself off to you in this. God, open me up. And God was kind to me. And I'm sure some of y'all have had those experiences where God was kind. And a once closed heart, he opened up a little bit, let the air in and let the light in. So that the affliction wouldn't just be bitterness, wouldn't just be pain, but it would be something that could actually teach and instruct. After all, I mentioned Job briefly a moment ago, and that was from the quote about the covenanters. They were like Job of old. They blessed the name of the Lord. Uh, that's referring to that really bad day that Job had, where after the end of the day, he 
got on his knees, and he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But do you remember what it said about Job in chapter 1? Before the bad day? This is what we forget. Yes, he was prosperous. Remember what else it said? Righteous man. What else did it? It it gives a detail that I think is so critical. He walked with God. Another detail I'm fishing for. All those are right, but there's one I'm fishing for. It's really important, I think. If you're going to write a book on how to prepare to suffer, this is what you want to put in that book. Look at Job chapter 1. Calling an audible here, but it's important. Job 1, verse 5, remember this, when the days of the feast had run their course, this is talking about his sons and daughters throwing a party. Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. What does it say next? Thus Job did once, twice. Occasionally, when it fit into his busy schedule. Thus, Job did continually. How do you prepare to suffer? You got to be much with God, you got to be continually with God. A heart does not come open and stay open to the Lord without being often with the Lord in prayer, often with the Lord in praise, often with the Lord in hearing and believing and obeying the word. Job devoted himself to continually doing that. All of it was by grace, but he continually did it. So that when the worst day of his life came, Job was able, instead of cursing God, which is what everybody thought he should do, his own wife thought he should do it. And egged him on to do it. And yet Job says, no, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. He said, verse 68, God is good. And he does good. Because he had been with God, the good God, continually every day of his life. And he had been convinced of God's character. And so God sanctified, washed in the blood of Jesus, not only the sins of Job, but the sufferings of Job too. And God can and will do that for us. Amen? If we will be continually with him. I've got a few minutes before we sing uh, that I would love to hear thoughts or reflections or questions on what we talked about tonight. I didn't give a whole lot of time for interaction tonight, but any, any thoughts or, or questions? Clint? Related to that, you know, where, you, where your 
Yeah. And not to be trite about it, because suffering is real. Yeah. But there's a very big difference when your hope is in what's the best I can have here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is my hope, and this demands to be wrecked now, because all this stuff has gone wrong with you know, the thing that I know I'd like to have to trash. Versus, I'm going to be in heaven. Yeah. Very true. Yeah, the long, the eternal view versus just the here and now view. It's key. Alex? Sure. Yeah, certainly if you stay there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a time for everything under the sun, but certainly you don't want to stay in a place of whining and doom and gloom all the time. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we still get hurt. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. I, I found that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a real thing. Even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great verse there. Yeah. 75. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. Whew. Amen. It's a tough one, but yes. Amen. Everybody. Yes. Yeah. Whereas those who Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, did y'all like did y'all like that quote as much as I did? They believe that their sufferings were as blood washed as their sins. Maybe that didn't excite you like it excited me, but maybe it was just that I was in an airplane, but it it excited me a lot to think of it that way. I'd never thought of suffering being washed in the blood of Jesus. That was good, and that's what you're saying. We have that hope, um, watered by the blood. Well, that's good. Think about that, and maybe, maybe one of you will want to write the book, How to Prepare for Suffering, because <laughs> it needs to be written.